Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Daniel Mahoney, well-known to First Things uh, readers and listeners. We had him on the podcast last last year. He's emeritus professor now at Assumption College, whose many writings include the books, The Conservative Foundations of the Liberal Order, The Other Solzhenitsyn, and The Idol of Our Age. He has a new book out entitled The Statesman as Thinker, Portraits of Greatness, Courage, and Moderation. That is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Mahoney. Thank you, Mark. Very, ha- very happy to be back again. Well, let's, let's jump right in. You start with a French thinker, uh, Chateaubriand, uh, a fellow who, who met uh, George Washington in 1791. And it's not about Chateaubriand, it's uh, his impression of George Washington. What did uh, the, young, the young Frenchman see in that man? You know, I wrote that uh, preface to the book last, and I happened, as I was about to compose it, to pick up a copy of Chateaubriand's wonderful multi-volume memoir, D'Outre-Tome, and I just stumbled across the passage about his meeting. He met Washington twice in 1791. He was a young aristocrat, a kind of exile from the French Revolution, uh, a bit of an adventurer. And by the way, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville's cousin. Chateaubriand met Washington, and he was very struck by, as many people were, by his, uh, his character, his the austerity of his character, the... Uh, Republican Reserve. Uh, he famously said that uh, when when Washington invited him back for dinner, but he says as he was gazing at Chateaubriand, who at that time was not famous, he would become one of the most famous writers in all of Europe. But he says he was gazing at me, or no, nobody. He said I saw he 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 saw virtue in his eyes. There is virtue mm-hmm. in the gaze of a great man. And I thought that was a very striking and uh, alluring image. And uh, in the Memoir de Dautotome, there's also a discussion of Napoleon. And make a long story short, Chateaubriand certainly appreciated the greatness, if we can call it that, of Napoleon Bonaparte. He was an extraordinary man. And to be fair, he was no Hitler or no Stalin even if he was responsible for the deaths of millions simply by unleashing war uh, throughout the European continent. But uh, Chateaubriand turned against Napoleon in 1803 when uh, the Duc d'Angien, a French aristocrat who Chateaubriand knew, was juridically murdered for being involved, not very seriously, in some kind of plot uh, 
against Napoleon. And that was the first sign that this wasn't going to be sort of an ordinary authoritarian regime, Mm -hmm. that Napoleon was willing to do whatever it took to sustain his rule and to establish a new order in France. So henceforth, there's these couple of, they're not very long, but these comparisons between Napoleon and Washington. Napoleon famously said, not quoted by Chateaubriand, alas, they wanted me to be Washington. (laughs) They wanted him to be, they, some of his supporters and many of the people of France wanted him to be a constitutional ruler who limited his authority and knew how to go home. And, you know, Chateaubriand is really good at describing this sort of hole in Napoleon's soul, that he really, once he was exiled, first to Elba, the famous escape, the Hundred Days, defeat of Waterloo, and then finally really exiled to that barren St. Helena in the, Saint, uh, in the South Atlantic. You know, uh, Napoleon had no reason to live. You know, he was miserable. He was, um, and, and the fact that Washington could go home with dignity and Washington, part of Washington's greatness, as we all know, is that self-limitation that allowed him to show what genuine statesmanship is. So, you know, Chateaubriand was fully aware French conditions and American conditions were very different. Washington had many advantages having to do with the British political culture we had inherited and the 150-year experience of colonial self-government preceded our constitutional founding. But I would say he also saw there there were two different souls here. And that theme is very essential to my book, that... uh, There is a meaningful distinction between the statesman and the tyrant. It's not an arbitrary distinction, just as there is a meaningful and uh, a very relevant distinction between those rare men who really, those public-spirited men of honorable ambition uh, that we call statesmen and sort of ordinary political men who may be perfectly decent, may be perfectly mediocre, but really belong to a different category. So I thought it was a great way to sort of enter into the phenomena of what's more striking than these two great men who uh, whose souls really point in different directions. And I should add, uh, Tocqueville, uh, who I mentioned was related to uh, Chateaubriand, uh, on his mother's side, Tocqueville famously said about Napoleon, he was as great as you could be without being good. Hmm. And so greatness, I mean, really that idea goes back to Aristotle's description of the great-souled man, that there's an intimate connection between greatness and goodness. Goodness here meaning, you know, the exercise of the moral and intellectual virtue, certainly the virtue of prudence, where those two meet. And, uh, you know, today a lot of people, especially Christians, when we think of goodness, we think of... uh, you know, the self-sacrifice of a Mother Teresa, but but virtue also takes the form of high command, you know, uh, order of the soul, you know, the ability to do great deeds for the public good. And as I emphasize in my book, uh, I think that's really impossible to do without being able to think seriously about human nature and the human condition and and one's country's political heritage. So, um, yeah, so I thought it was a good way to start because it, it opens up, you might say, the phenomenon, you know, what's distinctive about statesmanship as opposed to tyranny and political mediocrity. You you note right after that, 
maybe this is something of a, uh, of a tragic condition of the founding, but you say that the founders developed a system of government that actually made great statesmanship less necessary to the orderly function of society. And then you ask whether the founders might have succeeded uh, perhaps a little too well in that. What, what is your answer to that crux? In the correspondence between Jefferson and Adams, you know, they were political enemies in the 1790s and they have very different judgments about the French Revolution. And of course, we had the great split in the country between the quasi-aristocratic Federalist Party and the much more small d Democratic populist uh, Democratic Republicans. But uh, Jefferson and Adams reconciled after 1812. Of course, their correspondence is quite famous, but they both look back sort of longingly to that uh, that founding generation as demigods. You know, these were these were the kind of figures one reads about in Plutarch's lives. You know, they almost a mythical character. And I think they all knew that that kind of that level, that self-conscious level of political excellence had something to do with the great circumstances they faced. A war for independence, the establishment of a new republic. You know, they were legislators with a capital L, as the classics called them. But I think it was more than that. You know, I don't think I quoted in the book, but there's a famous letter of John Adams where he says, you know, I'm going to be a statesman. So, you know, to his son, so you can be a businessman, and then your son can be a poet, and all that. It goes on and on, but uh, it's it's quite an eloquent passage, and it really suggests that the most dignified life, the most desirable life, is a kind of non-political life, a life of leisure, uh, a life of personal pursuit. High-minded, I think, that was certainly Adam's view, but I think Adams probably underestimated the the intrinsic dignity of the political vocation. And even though he was certainly an admirer of the, the achievements of classical statesmen and certainly read about the Romans and the Greeks from Plutarch and others, he was a modern liberal man to the extent that, you know, we in liberal societies privilege the private over the public. Um, that doesn't mean we don't admire the Washingtons and Lincolns. But we think of those lives and possibilities as so rare and so distinct from our lives, which are essentially private lives, that I do think we have dignity we have difficulty appreciating the what what statesmanship is, you know, the nobility of a life dedicated to public service, to honorable ambition, but that's not simply at the, at the service of self-aggrandizement. And uh, so, yes, and the founding did. I, I've never been one of those people who believes that the founders, because they established a system of checks and balances and separated powers, all the liberal constitutional mechanisms we know about from modern political philosophy and that are so wonderfully and nobly explicated in the Federalist Papers that they simply wanted to create a political order that didn't need virtue or statesmanship at all. I think it's Madison in Federalist 55 who says that Republican government um, depends on virtue uh, more than any other. On the same time, uh, uh, you know, 
Madison famously tells us in Federalist 10 and 51, you can't always count on virtue. And because you can't count on virtue, you need those famous auxiliary precautions. But at a minimum, I think it's fair to say they really thought if they were successful, that the kind of high statesmanship and statecraft that they embodied, you know, which resembles the heroes of Plutarch and antiquity, would, would, if not become obsolete, would become very rare. And, um, and it really is true that the next great American statesman is Abraham Lincoln, uh, who came from very simple, humble background. And yet um, Lord, Lord uh, uh, Charnwood, uh, is one of his first biographers, a British diplomat, beautiful writer, he said he had the soul of a natural aristocrat. He was um, he proved that de- in a way that democracy was capable uh, was compatible with human greatness. But you know, Lincoln had uh, been elected to Congress in 1846. Uh, he always loathed slavery. Um, he was a Whig, you know. But if it hadn't been for the repeal of the of Missouri Compromise of 1820 that allowed slavery the, the repeal of 1854 allowed slavery to spread to new states and territories. That energized Lincoln. That, he gave his great speech of Peoria that I analyzed at some length in the book, and that returned him to public life. So in a way, it was an accident. Uh, Lincoln was a very successful lawyer for the, mainly his clients were the, the expanding railroad companies going west, but uh, uh, he returned to public life. And we, we know the rest of the story uh, before his election, you know, a series of remarkable addresses and speeches clarifying the moral foundations of the American Republic and the, the fact that the founder's path was putting slavery on the road to eventual extinction. Of course, I point out in the book that um, many woke scholars, the 1619 crowd and others, uh, at best, present Lincoln as a racist. They read in a shoddy way. You know, they uh, uh, there's no evidence that I know of that Lincoln had a had a single racist bone in his body. Uh, I think the electors in Illinois happen to be anti-slavery and and racist, but and Lincoln had to deal with them as they were. But uh, but the accident of Lincoln rising, achieving what he did, and of course dying. This sort of uh, sacrificial death, you know, in April 1865. In a way, it's an accident. Uh, It's a beautiful and wonderful accident. So essential to the American story. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. It, it sort of uh, it, it, it relates to I think the distinction that you hinted at with honorable ambition and dishonorable ambition and the dishonorable ambition has, you used the term a moment ago, the, that element of self-aggrandizement. And 
you know, people who go into politics out of self-aggrandizement, they, they stay there. You know, they, they don't want to leave or and they get into it for for selfish reasons. And and the Lincoln coming in all, all, almost by accident, I think that that's a sign of of a potentially good statesman at work. Your well, next I think that's figure. right. I mean, they're clearly great statesmen who were imbued with a deep sense of both ambition and obligation. You know, people like Cicero and Churchill were lifelong statesmen, but yeah. there was a high-mindedness that informed what they did, and um, and and they were quite willing to be unpopular for the sake of doing to preserving what was worthy of preservation whether it was cicero fighting the Catalan conspiracy or trying desperately trying to hold caesarean despotism at bay or whether it's churchill really standing pretty alone between 1939 and at least 1938-39 you know and warning about the nazi threat and uh, and the, the the demise of civic courage in britain and of course churchill lincoln and cicero all are uh really quite remarkable because their writings and speeches are worth studying with great care today. Churchill won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Lincoln was the great poet philosopher of the American political order. And uh, one can make a very good case for Cicero as a political philosopher of a very serious rank and not really a Roman statesman. But um, yeah, they're really remarkable figures. But uh, Churchill... You know, Churchill and Cicero didn't just say, you know, I, they need me now. They were <laughs> they were dedicated yeah, yeah, to yeah. Pu- public life. So it, it can work different ways. You know, I even have a chapter at the end of the book on Václav Havel. You know, he was a, came from a bourgeois family, couldn't go to college in communist Czechoslovakia, was a sort of underground poet and dramatist. And uh, and once he starts the Charter 77 movement, just, you know, 200, 300 people out of 18 million in Czechoslovakia. And, you know, on January 1st, after the Velvet Revolution, January 1st, 1990, he finds himself president of Czechoslovakia. It's another kind of miracle story. And uh, um, normally I would not recommend a dramatist and poet to become president (laughs) of any country. Uh, (laughs) uh, Tocqueville has a wonderful phrase in his souvenirs where he, he talks about people, intellectuals who bring the literary spirit into politics you know in other words they lack realism they don't ask what they would do if they were in a position of responsibility they draw sketches abstract schemes of utopia and all that but uh, Havel wasn't that way Havel uh, I think because he had confronted the worst utopian totalitarian ideology in human history there was a realism about his moral politics so all these guys I, I highlight, you know, they come from uh, different backgrounds. Their engagement with politics is different. But in each case, there is a combination of deep, honorable ambition with genuine thoughtfulness, a thoughtfulness that we might call philosophical, that it arrived, you know, that this is, you know, uh, one can certainly learn as much from any of the figures I treat in this book about human nature, the human condition, the soul, the virtues, as one can from any uh, philosopher. Yeah, and that's a strong claim. Well, one um, of your uh, one of your figures in the early uh, part, uh, Edmund Burke, 
who, who's important in your in your discussion. He actually wrote a work of philosophy, essay upon the sublime and beautiful. I think that was 1757 before his his political career really took off. But I wanted to ask you one thing he warns about with statesmanship is to beware of quote abstraction in politics. What was he worried about there? Well, I think Burke was, he's the first and greatest critic of the literary spirit or the spirit of abstraction in modern politics. Modern politics is different than pre-modern politics in that it's very intertwined with philosophy. Leo Strauss called it the, the modern project, you know, that there were a series of thinkers who in a, in, a, in a sort of way had outlined a new understanding of science, of morality, you know, really reduced largely to self-interest and to self-preservation, um, skeptical of religion, in some cases atheistic, in other cases simply suspicious of religious enthusiasm or zeal, as they said in the Enlightenment centuries. Um, there's a wonderful line in the reflections when talking about the sort of zealous theories of uh, of some of the Enlightenment thinkers who informed, or the French philosophers who informed the French Revolution. And Burke said they oppose the uh, they oppose the monks with the spirit of the monk. In other words, this was a new secular religion, and maybe more fanatical than the old religion. You know, Burke had sympathy. Burke had thought there was an intimate connection between the Christian religion and mercy, chivalry, gentlemanliness, although he knew there could be zeal in the Christian religion too. But um, so there's the spirit of abstraction, and we might even say ideology is a constant temptation under conditions of modernity. And um, I have a little footnote in my Burke chapter uh, from an essay Alexander Hamilton wrote on the French Revolution in 1794, where Hamilton says, I don't want people comparing the French and American revolution as if they're comparable things. He said, our revolution was based on long experience of self-government, the reflection on human nature. And he said, theirs was made by fanatics in political science. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I think he's making the same point Burke was. But Burke went a bit further. I think there's a good literature. I, I, I allude to it, uh, Father Francis Canavan, uh, Peter Stanless, and others, who make the case that you know Burke drew on and respected the natural law tradition, but he was very critical of bringing metaphysics into politics. Again, abstractions. Mm -hmm. So he never denounced metaphysics or political theory. And he certainly had, I think, a very considered and realistic, but also morally serious view of human nature. But this idea that politics can be based upon a system, that he was very skeptical about. And he saw in France, yeah, you want to sum it up in one fell swoop, when the French abolish uh, the monarchy, they, they'd really done it a few years before, but when it's officially abolished 1792 and they adopt the new calendar year zero 13 months eight days in the week an openly and aggressively anti-christian calendar with no recognition of the continuity of civilization 
for um, Burke, that's a monstrosity. The idea that you can begin things uh, uh, completely over again. And so he says at the beginning of Reflections, he says, people, you know, everyone's, you know, yelling and screaming, you know, words were lists to be alive, you know, with the French Revolution. He says, well, give me a few minutes. I want to see how the thing turns out. <laughs> I, I just don't want to hear the cries of joy. I want to hear, he said, liberty is like a gas in the air, you know. Is it going to give rise to, you know, some kind of political order that is good for human freedom and human dignity and for civilized life? Or is it going to be an occasion for moral subversion? And, you know, Burke Burke knew that um, I think a lot of intellectuals in the 20th century were indulgent toward communism. I think it was something like the same thing. Well, communism was good in theory. Of course, it's terrible in theory. Abolishing property, family, nation, and religion, the four abolitions of Marx is terrible. But all my students tell me communism is wonderful in theory. And that makes them be indulgent toward it in practice, right? And um, that's what Burke was fighting against, these abstractions, that uh, these a priori metaphysical or philosophical assumptions that got in the way of prudence. Burke famously called prudent judgment. He didn't mean timidity. He didn't mean just restraint. He meant that high moral intellectual virtue that Aristotle talked about. He called it the god of this world below. It is the political virtue par excellence. Yeah. You, you know uh, what, what you just said about theory and practice. I, I first heard the joke in the 80s when all of us were reading French theory, and the issue was, well, such and such works in practice, but can it work in theory? So, <laughs> um, but you're, you're in Paris right now, Dan, so be careful. Watch what you say about the French, all right? Well, I once, uh, had, an ex I once had an experience. I was having a drink at the Hotel Lutetia with Pierre Menant, and I was saying something about all the trouble Jacques Derrida had caused, and Pierre looked over and said, two tables away, he says, that's Jacques Derrida. No <laughs> 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 uh, account, Jacques Derrida was a nice man. He just caused lots of trouble. He was, he, he was, you know, his followers, I think, well, his, his, well, we can, we can get into Derrida, but, but uh, another Frenchman, Tocqueville, important in your discussion. The quite, one question to pose for Tocqueville, you, you bring this up is, was he worried that uh, democracy in practice would lead to a kind of anti-greatness egalitarianism that would hamper the emergence of superior statesmen. Is that a problem? Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's a that's a very lapidary way of expressing his his major theoretical and practical concern. Theoretically he said he worried about pantheism. He said everyone who cares about human greatness has to rally against the pantheistic spirit. He saw it in literature, he saw it in philosophy, he saw it in politics, the failure to make distinctions between higher and lower, between God and man, between man and animals, you know, this kind of... Tocqueville is very interesting because throughout the second volume of Democracy in America, he defends uh, the truth of equality, but he excoriates what he calls the passion for equality, the passion to level, to tear mm. down. And that's linked with the philosophical refusal to acknowledge distinctions 
uh, between better and worse, between higher and lower. So there are so many formulations in Tocqueville's writings about uh, him. He calls himself, his self-description is a, you know, a partisan of liberty and human greatness, liberty and human dignity. He always ties liberty to something else that informs it and elevates it. Uh, in the uh, oh, first 50 pages or so of the first volume of Democracy in America, he says to the Americans, there are two kinds of equality, a noble equality that wants to raise everyone up and a, uh, a mean and pathetic liberty that wants to tear everything down. So, but I would say Tocqueville's greatness lay in the fact that he knew we were not going to be able to save human greatness if we simply warred on democracy in a way that there had to be a place for greatness, for distinction, for honor, for self-respect, for religious truth within what he called the faded circle of democracy. So to, to be like the integralist today, you know, wanting to set up, uh, you know, a, a religious commonwealth that, you know, where the common good uh, is sort of a priori imposed on the social order. Tocqueville would say, A, that's not theoretically desire or practically desirable, but B, it won't work, you know. So there has to be a, a, an element of indirection. Like greatness has to be a friend of democracy and not an enemy of democracy if we're going. And I, I, I sometimes describe Tocqueville's project as self-consciously Sisyphean. We're never going to achieve that order where, you know, oh, finally, liberal democracy has a natural law foundation, or finally, we've perfectly integrated revealed religion and human freedom. It's just a constant effort. Democracy has a nature, he says, that pushes toward dogmatic egalitarianism, leveling, and even despotism, but through the exercise of the art of liberty, informed by wisdom, maybe, just maybe, we have a fighting chance of staving that off and saving a space for human dignity and greatness. Yeah. It's very non-utopian, but it's an effort to moderate and elevate democracy from within. But but let me add, you can only do that if you have some appreciation of a horizon of human dignity and greatness that is not reducible to democratic or egalitarian categories. And I'd say that would right. mean bringing, you know, the old wisdom, which is largely classical and Christian wisdom to bear while acknowledging the genuine goods associated with modern liberty and modern democracy. I think it's the only practical project still in town, so to speak. I mean, all the other ones just to kind of reject the existing order to core don't work or could make things worse. But Tocqueville was very attentive to a dynamic that I would call the endless self-radicalization of modernity and democracy. You don't think, who who 20 years would have thought gay marriage would be succeeded by this metaphysically mad, to quote Edmund Burke, preoccupation with 153 genders or the president of the United mm -hmm. States issuing a proclamation saying the intersexed are un in danger, you know? This is, this is madness, you know, the the common world, the world of common sense, the, you know, it's a, some kind of second reality is being imposed on the real world. But Tocqueville knew that. He knew that, and Burke knew that. They knew that 
democracy could give rise to these terrible despotic abstractions. So part of our part of the task of those of us who love civilization, liberty, moderation is, you know, defending, you know, a common sense view of democracy against this endless radicalization. We need we, we need statesmen. And, you know, the book proceeds with Lincoln and Churchill, de Gaulle. Uh, you mentioned Havel. There, there's an interesting note uh, at the end on, on, quote, the melancholy of superior men. I'm offering that to our listeners as, as a teaser to go get the book and read these profiles. But the title of the book is The Statesman as Thinker, Portraits of Greatness, Courage, and Moderation. Professor Mahoney, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Great fun. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.